the law firm structures and uh, organizational structures generally still sort of represent, right, that ideal worker norm, the worker who's supported at home by another person, right? And I think that hasn't changed in terms, especially as we know in the legal profession, right? In terms of the way that organizations are structured and the demands of the client service, that's basically the structure. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker. We're the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider. We've been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we will look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry. Occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. In today's episode, we will be discussing strategies for driving gender diversity in the legal industry. We're incredibly honored to have with us today Paula Monopoly and Melissa Murray. Professor Monopoly is the Saul and Carlin Hubert Professor of Law at the University of Maryland, Carey School of Law, where she founded its Women, Leadership, and Equality program. She holds an appointment as a visiting scholar at the Muller Institute, Churchill College, University of Cambridge. Paula has published widely on the intersection of gender and constitutional design. Most recently, she published Constitutional Orphan Gender Equality and the 19th Amendment, which explores legal and political developments in the decade after the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Professor Murray is a Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law at NYU and Faculty Director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network. Melissa is a leading expert in family law, constitutional law, and reproductive rights and justice. Following law school, Professor Murray clerked for Sonia Sotomayor, then of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, and Stefan Underhill of the United States District Court for the District of Connecticut. And I was honored to know her as a Sherman and Sterling LDF scholar, uh, low those many years ago, Professor Murray. <laughs> Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Awesome. So we'll, uh, we'll get started. It can be frustrating to say this, but women in the legal profession still face barriers and implicit bias. As much as we believe that these, or may want to believe that these concerns are behind us, uh, the data seems to suggest that uh, we are not. Uh, women currently outnumber men in law school. They're relatively well represented at firms at the junior and the mid-level, uh, and even senior associate level, comprising about 46% of all associate attorneys. Yet, when we arrive at the equity partner level, the representation drops sharply. We get to only 19%. And women occupy only 25% of executive leadership positions. So having laid out some of the stats, I'll start with you, Paula. Um, and it's interesting that, that your book that uh, John quoted at the beginning, Constitutional Orphan, uh, Gender Equality and the 19th Amendment, you say the 19th Amendment has always been uh, about more than voting. And we've obviously 100 years into this thing, but maybe not the progress that we wanted. So starting with you, and then we're going to move to Melissa. How did we get here? Uh, if this was uh, 100 years ago that we, that we passed the 19th, why are the numbers still uh, showing what they're showing? Well, I think, Brian, it's a, it's a great point that you make. If we look at that arc of 100 years, um, the law firm structures and uh, organizational structures generally still sort of represent, right, that ideal worker norm. Um, and Joan Williams talks a lot about this in her work, that they are built around the worker 
who's supported at home by another person, right? And so, and right. and I think that hasn't changed in terms, especially as we know in the legal profession, right? In terms of the way that organizations are structured and the demands of the client service, that's basically the structure and that hasn't changed. And I think that the other thing uh, that we grapple with are gender schemas. And finally, uh, I think we haven't sort of changed the basic societal structure that law firms sit within, which still disproportionately put child care and elder care on women. And uh, we can talk, I think, uh, uh, about that and uh, some of the changes that we need to make in that regard. But when we talked about the 19th Amendment and going beyond voting, you know, some of the work, right, of the scholarly work that kind of led the way on that talked about, Reva Siegel's work, for example, talks about the idea that this was about upending the traditional family. It had that yeah. impact, the 19th Amendment, right? If women could move from the private sphere into the public sphere and govern on an equal basis with men, that changed the family structure. And it was challenging in that way. Yeah, maybe before I throw it over to to, to John, uh, Melissa, we could come to we could come to you because uh, when Paula was talking about the the family, we were interested because uh, we were we were going through one of your articles uh, in the uh, the Journal of Gender and Policy. Um, what's so new uh, about the new illegitimacy? And I found interesting in there that. You talked about parenthood. Uh, you talked about the nuclear family and where does uh, LGBT and queer folks uh, come in? Uh, and then lastly, uh, I think a theme maybe hopefully we'll be able to tease out is what about those parents that are raising uh, children on their own? And and I think you highlight that that may be uh, more prevalent in the African-American community. But I wonder if you could just give us a little foundational context as we get into the conversation. Sure. A lot of what I'll say will echo what Paula has said so well. Um, in the United States, we really rely on the family to patch up what is essentially a really tattered social safety net. Um, you know, we don't have universal health care the way that other advanced democracies may have. We don't have subsidies for child care, at least not robust subsidies the way that other um, democracies might have. But what we have instead is the family, where that kind of dependency or vulnerability is privatized. We expect the family to do it, and more importantly, the family in conjunction with the market. So the idea that there is someone going to work to build the wealth that will basically allow this particular family unit to accommodate its own dependency such that it doesn't have to rely on the state for that. And again, as Paula says, that model is one where you have a breadwinner who goes out into the market and a homebound caregiver who is providing care, and whether it's to adults who are elderly or to children themselves. And that model is the basic building block of our welfare system. And it's also the kind of landscape on which industry has built itself. And, and the law firms are no different in this respect from any other industry. They are basically plunking themselves down into a landscape where this is assumed. Um, the problem, of course, is that even though those assumptions are fixed, the world around the law firm has changed and changed dramatically. As you say, women are now outnumbering men in law school, when they go to the firms, their rough parity, about 46%, as you said, of, of the associate classes are women. The problem really comes in, how do they advance? And what we've seen over time is that there's a really leaky pipeline where women fall out before they actually have the chance to get to the point where they'll become leaders in the law firm. Yeah, if I could pick up on that, um, because I think you know, obviously that's the issue, right? When you look at the statistics and we know it from practicing law, that that's the problem. Um, and um, how do law firms, given particularly their culture, and I, I do take your point, Melissa, that it's, um, it's not unique to law firms, but as we know, law firms are particularly harsh places in the workplace in, in certain respects. And by that, I mean, uh, it's not a place that is particularly user-friendly to people. Um, and so how do we help law firms or how do law firms help themselves to get to the point where they can make meaningful change and increase gender diversity in the leadership ranks, which is the objective? The intake is there, and they're not allowing, and, and people are not getting to the levels of leadership that you would expect. Yeah, so I, I think... 
when we've sort of looked at this problem, and it's a problem we've been studying for a long time, it wasn't you know yesterday that we looked around and realized that women weren't advancing in law firms. This is something that's been talked about certainly since I was in law school. And I think at least initially, there was some discussion about sort of the skills that women lacked to be successful in this environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Maybe they were more diffident, um, more reticent, less willing to sort of be aggressive about building business connections or business relationships. That, I think, is sort of really gone by the wayside as more and more firms have really invested, and rightly so, in providing training, not just for women, but all of their associates that will give them the kinds of skills that they will need, not just the hard legal skills, but also some of these soft skills. And so once you've sort of filled that part where you've sort of dealt with the individual and whatever sort of gaps the individual might have in his or her skill set, I think you really then need to step back and think about the background norms against which these individuals are deploying that skill set. And I think that's the point that we're at now. Um, We know what it takes to succeed on a personal level, and what really needs to change are these background norms. And that really needs to come from a recognition that the associates that you have, the lawyers, the talent that you are trying to recruit and retain, it does not look the way it did a generation ago. You know, we have single parents who are practicing lawyers. We have LGBTQ families where the traditional gender division of labor just does not hold in the same way. And so we have to accommodate that and we have to understand it on the ground and how it's working within our organizations. Yeah, I just want to echo um, what Melissa just said in terms of looking at this as a structural problem. And we it, we indeed have been looking at it for a very long time now, right? We've got 40% of classes in the 1980s were women. Now we're about 50-50. Uh, it's not a pipeline problem. And that was always the sort of finger pointing was, well, there are just not enough women yet in the in the pipeline. And we know that that's not the case, right? So, you know, um, what we've seen is very slow, very in- incremental change, especially that sort of leaky pipeline issue has not changed very much. And I think the, the biggest change that I saw just in looking at the arc of 20 years was when clients started to put pressure on law firms and said, you have to have people who are not just at the pitch, but who are actually billing. And they started looking at the billing and seeing whether the people were actually right putting time into these cases. And so I think that that, has, that really caused some change, right? We've seen a little bit of change in equity partners from, you know, 2007, I guess, to 2020, uh, maybe six or 7% increase to get up to that 19, 20 or 21% number, depending on which which sort of surveys you look at. So that helped. Um, I think that's pushed and that's got to continue to push. The economic pressure is what caused some change, right? And I think after the recession, we may see firms change their opinions about telework and working at home. And what women are often say, or they say they're seeking is flexibility. It's not that they want to work reduced hours as much as they want flexible hours, right? And I think that makes a huge difference. Um, And maybe we'll see a big change after we get back to quote unquote normal in the after times here after this pandemic. Um, and that that will be, you know, firms again, economically, they won't want to keep as much office space. That, that'll help their bottom line. They may be much more flexible that way and that may have some benefits. And then finally, I think we need to see men change, right? If men are 80% of equity partners and making decisions, they have to want balanced lives and more right, satisfying uh, balance between practice and personal life. Um, And, you know, maybe we see generational change. And I think um, Melissa sort of mentioned that, right? We have different kinds of lawyers now with different sorts of backgrounds and needs. And so that's an important piece of this puzzle too. Another issue I think we're seeing is the sort of lag of the long tail. We are operating in an environment where the most senior equity partners are lawyers who graduated from law school around 1967, when the percentage of women in law schools hovered at around 3 to 4%. Um, those expectations, I think, of, of those most senior partners may be very different from their more junior counterparts. And that's something to think about. And maybe there's work to be done there. Um, we haven't talked about the issues related to 
how women are brought along, whether they're sponsored or mentored and, and how they are brought into the organization and, and taught to do some of these things that aren't really obvious and certainly aren't things that we teach in law school, like client development. But there are things that are absolutely crucial to advancing. And so those are issues I think we have to deal with as well. Like We have a population that is really changing in the way they live their lives. But we have an older leadership that may not be quite as attuned to how those changes have worked. And, and, and so there's perhaps a little lag there that we need to be attentive to. Really good, really important. Um, let me just start with, with where uh, we left off on the last question, and that was clients. We see that when uh, substantial progress has been made, it's clients that are really driving it. And Paul, I think you you said that well a minute ago. Um, so we do have that. We're still not quite where we want to be. What are some other things that that clients can do to help out this equation? One of the things that we cite in our white paper, Restoring Lost Hope, is there are clients that have adopted a series of carrots and sticks. And one of the most uh, notable sticks is JP Morgan. And it's very black and white. 50% of our outside work will be done by women and people of color. Fall below that, uh, there are going to be consequences. Um, obviously, you have to reward people for good behavior too. Let, let me stop. Paula, what else can clients do to help drive this? What are the other factors that are out there uh, for them to to be a part of the solution? Yeah, I I, I certainly think um, the again this push to monitor right the firms that are doing their work, not just in terms of you know whether actually people of color and women are doing the work. That's the first important metric and, and thing that they should be monitoring. But we see internally, structurally, that things like, and we're, uh, you know, compensation is a huge, you know, piece of this puzzle as well, right? And origination credit and who's working on the case and getting relationship credit and managing credit for this becomes a really important piece as well. And when you talk to women who are, you know, equity partners who are sort of been pushing for years and they're tired, the thing that comes up first is compensation, right? Because we all equate right. compensation with value and women are not going to stay where they're not valued. So I think that um, clients can, again, you know, at least monitor their own um, work in terms of what the firm's doing and ask them who's getting origination credit, who's getting the managing, you know, the credit for managing the relationship. You know, I think those are appropriate questions. And th that goes a little farther than just saying we want, you know, women to be working on these uh, issues and, and show us the timesheets. But it that pressure matters, right, um, to law yeah. firms. So. And Melissa, just to come to you for a second, and I wonder if you could talk about some of your work and, you know, inflect for us uh, a little bit is, you know, the concept of motherhood, first and foremost, are folks using that as an excuse and how can clients be helpful there? And then um, what corporations seem to be a little bit ahead uh, on this regard uh, than our law firms. And I'm wondering, are there best demonstrated practices that could also be learned? Sure. Um, Clients obviously play a really important role in this because the law firms are chasing clients. And so they're willing to dance to the tune that the clients set. Um, notably, however, there is also, I think, a diversity problem in most C-suites, right? Um, women make up only about 20% of C-suite level executives. That doesn't necessarily mean that women cannot be impactful on the client side. We've seen lots of deputy GCs or um, the people who are making decisions about hiring law firms will actually be women. And I think for them, at least, um, it can be incredibly important that diversity is represented. And it has to go simply beyond the pitch. Like many law firms will put women and people of color on the pitch. And then when you actually show up to do the work, you may wonder what happened to this incredibly diverse team that I assembled and I thought I hired. You, so there have to be, I think, incentives to continue that behavior going down. Um, it's also important, I think, that we look beyond just the clients as individuals who can shape behavior. 
career in the legal profession. There was a terrific op-ed by Shira Shindlin, who used to be a judge in the Southern District of New York a few years ago, who noted that when she was sitting as a judge, that they would come in for motion practice, the lawyers, and there would be a woman or a person of color seated next to the more senior lawyer. And every time she asked a question, the more senior lawyer would turn and whisper to the second chair attorney who was not actually arguing the motion. And finally, Judge Shinlin said, I don't want to hear from you. I want to hear from her. It's obvious she wrote this motion. I, I want to talk to her. And she talked about, you know, one of the things that holds women and people of color back from advancing in the profession is the lack of experience. Um, when a client has a bet the company litigation, they want someone who's been experienced in court. And you can't get that experience if you're not giving the opportunity to do so. And so she suggested judges can actually facilitate that by making it part of their courthouse rules or courtroom rules to allow the person who actually worked on the motion to do the arguing. And, and that can be a very small change that could be incredibly meaningful. I think um, I want to pick up on the theme of pressure and accountability um, because we're, we're using the clients as a surrogate for uh, one form of pressure. And I think, uh, Melissa, you said it's it's not just the clients, it's judges. The question I have is, should we move to some sort of independent verifier of progress um, that measures this? So, for example, a friend of mine uh, has been at this for a long time. Uh, she has an organization in Europe called Equal Pay, um, and it's about the disparity in, in uh, pay for women and between women and men. And, um, and what she has developed is a certification process where a company voluntarily agrees to be audited by an accounting firm that has metrics for measuring the pay gap. And you get a grade on that. And it's something you can brag about if you're doing well, um, mm -hmm. sort of like uh, in the environmental area, if you get I can't remember whether it's a, a green, green, yeah. yeah, green certification or a gold star. The little, the little levels of certification, but this is a way for the world to take a look and see how you're doing, and and you can't influence the outcome because an independent auditor is essentially looking at it. Do we need to move to something more like that in order to put another stamp of of um, accountability and pressure into the process? Yeah. I do think, John, that that is definitely worth considering, and I know that there are there are uh, different groups that are beginning to do that. I think in this country too. Um, I, the problem that we see is that you know bias interrupters are not being deployed right uh, in law firms. They may, they're de they tend to be deployed fairly early in people's careers. They're not deployed when you sort of get to the upper ranks. And again, compensation's at issue, you know, discretionary decisions are at issue, uh, right? So, you know, hiring, okay, at the front end, you know, we'll sort of follow best practices. Not so much as people get more senior and they're battling for, you know, a share of the pie. So I think an independent certification would force, again, if clients were to value it and to say that that's a requirement, it would force those firms to do more of that serious um, reform, if you will, in terms of interrupting bias all the way along at hiring, at the evaluation process, right, which is really important, and uh, further up the line when compensation decisions are made. And there's, you know, wonderful research out there now, um, 30 years into this uh, about what those look like. It's just that they tend to use them as signaling devices that were being good. But then when it comes to serious, you know, discretionary decisions on the part of partners, well, we don't want to tie their hands, right? So it could serve an independent and it could serve a function of forcing the firms to actually do that work. I'm just thinking about the mayor of Paris, who has recently fined $110,000 for having the temerity to demand that more women be on corporate positions in, in the city. Um, so it, I think there's a lot of interest in the idea of these kinds of credentialing functions, a signaling function, um, and, and maybe even mandates, whether it's on corporate boards 
or elsewhere. Um, I think, obviously, there may be significant pushback from law firms for getting into the real nitty-gritty I mean, to actually make some of this truly meaningful, as Paula suggests. It's not just simply a question of like hiring, but actually opening up your books and, and seeing, you know, among your partnership, who is getting paid what. And I think there'd be incredible reluctance to do that. And also, I think, um, lots of opportunities to explain what the dispar- why the disparities exist. I mean, you know, so-and-so is a rainmaker. Um, so-and-so took three years off where she was part-time because she just had children. And, you know, these are the places where those childcare penalties may be meaningful as ways of explaining why there is a gap and why someone hasn't advanced as far as her counterpart. Um, so, you know, I think those can be incredibly good signals. They may be, in fact, really important for recruiting law students, for example, um, but they may not, mm-hmm. and they are actually very important for recruiting law students, but in terms of making meaningful changes in the way that firms do their work and, and actually assign value to the talent that they have, I, I think I'm more skeptical. The only thing yeah. I would say is t- twofold. I, I, I do agree with you, uh, as Paula was talking about, if clients care about it, then it will matter. I also think if your talent pipeline cares about it, then it matters. Yeah. Because if law students do look at it as something that tells them where to go and where not to go, that makes a difference. Um, and the second thing is, I accept there's a lot of subjectivity in the process and anonymity. But I think those can be solved. You can solve for the anonymity by using characteristics rather than names. And these subjective things like whether you're a rainmaker, well, you can measure, that can be measured. (laughs) Um, So, uh, but I do agree, there are outs there. There are ways for people to take outs, but at least I would suggest it might make some progress, um, even though there's a lot of variables. I, I don't disagree with that. Um, I think maybe the an- the anonymizing of information may actually be helpful, but I think it's going to be problematic where you have really small populations within firms. So, for example, women yes. of color are three percent of equity partners right. at law firms. Like you can't anonymize that. Everyone right. knows you're going to be able to trace that back. Yeah. yeah, I, I think a, yep. a really good Fair point. I, I guess my perspective, and there's probably some ground between where you and and Melissa are, John, um, having run a very big division at a public healthcare company, one of the the main things that we talk about is not only the standard and metrics that everybody's talked about here, and I think that's super important, um, but the, the companion piece of that has to be transparency. So is that reported? Is it regularized? And I was having... um, uh, a conversation with a, a lawyer to the board, just going through the same conversation that you guys were just having. And if investors start knowing, hey, this is where to where 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 you're going to look, there's going to be consequences coming out of this, and rewards. We're going to pause here. We're a little bit over halfway through the podcast and get to our favorite part. Well, maybe it's not our favorite, but it's a fun part of the podcast. <laughs> and we're going to talk uh, about our pet peeves for the week. Uh, and Professor Monopoly, we will start with you. Um, what pet peeve do you have this week that you would like to share with our audience? So this is an ongoing uh, pet peeve since the uh, commemoration of the 19th Amendment, Brian. So it's a little bit (laughs) obscure (laughs) reference, perhaps, but uh, it's when the press reports um, the sort of commemoration and the events around the 19th Amendment as dealing with suffragettes. So suffragette was a, a, a sort of a term of derision that was used against uh, the British militant suffragists uh, first, and they sort of embraced it and said, bring it on uh, to distinguish themselves. But our uh, suffragists here in the United States uh, kept looking at it as a term of derision. So when the press talks about suffragettes, to American suffragettes today, I sort of cringe and say, you know, if I could correct them, it's suffragist is the, is the correct term. So. I, I love that. Thank you. And I, I guess you have professors on and people that are way smarter than the host. You you learn something. So thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> Professor Murray, how about you? 
Well, mine is going to be disappointingly lowbrow. Uh, so okay. during this we, pandemic, we, we, we welcome that. We, that you're, you're, pl you're playing in our league. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> during the pandemic, my whole family has been here in in our home. All of us working online at various points during the day. But um, you know, our kids are in their bedrooms. My husband is in the home office, and I am relegated to the dining room, which is an open plan. So there are no doors. Um, it's all out in the open. And typically, whenever I start one of these podcasts, my daughter will come down. And that is the perfect moment in her view to make Rice Krispie treats or something else that requires taking out pots, pans, <laughs> and all sorts of noisy apparatuses <laughs> and making the biggest noise cacophony possible. That is my uh, thank you. No, that's uh, I'm sure people will resonate with that. Uh, John, what do you have for this this week? Well, my my pet peeve is having to come up with a pet peeve every week because you can't keep having a pet peeve I, with the pet peeve or with I my do. pet peeve. I do. I can't think of pet peeves. I, I just things don't bother me. So we're gonna have uh, we're have gonna a... have Megan start coming in a guest spot for you on this. All right. Um, I will, I will, I will take over, um, and you know, try to leave this on a on a on a bright note. I think you know, look, two, uh, 2020 has been challenging for all of us, right? I, I think there's probably no doubt about that, and um, COVID has made uh, a lots of things a little bit more challenging. And um, one of those things is, unfortunately, we're, we're we've lost loved ones this year, and people can't go and celebrate them, and you know, kind of remember their lives. And so, I'll just have this be more of a uh, of a tribute. Uh, one of my uh, fraternity brothers uh, who I pledged with uh, lost his mom uh, just yesterday and she kind of had uh, adopted me I mean I've known her most of my adult life uh, and then this morning my godfather uh, got the same news uh, fortunately he's lived a very full life but as I think about you know this subject and and being raised by a strong single mother uh, and this guy who took me to Cubs games and uh, uh, when it was time for prom helped me uh, go get a tux or not help me he took me and he paid for it uh, and uh, and made sure my friends and I got home safely. So um, I would just like to underscore the scorn at uh, at COVID uh, from keeping us to be able to celebrate folks like this uh, and to celebrate their lives in person. So, uh, you know, tribute to, uh, to, to both of them and thanks for letting me get that out. So as, uh, as we transition, um, I want to go back to this 19% number, the 19% number being the, the equity partners. And I think we said that, that we need to address the pipeline. Uh, I think you also put your finger on, though, uh, advancement and retention. So if we're starting with the 46 to 50% number and we're ending up at 19 or some number like that, in addition to pipeline, if you view that as a problem, what are some of the other things that we could better be doing to uh, retain and help people advance? Sure. Um, so I think the 19% number comes from a 2017 McKinsey study. There's been more recent data from yeah. 2019 that suggests it's about 22% of equity okay. partners are women. So it's we'll a little bit higher of, number. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, 22%, I think, for law school professors is still a failing grade. Um, so, yeah, you know, absolutely. there's that. Um, <laughs> it's progress, but I mean, it really does show that there is a significant gap to go from 46% entering law firms to being at around 21, 22% getting to equity partner. And so I, I think that leaky pipeline issue is huge. Um, some of it is obviously framed by background conditions such as parenthood. Um, many women will decide to leave a law firm once they become mothers. Um, I, I hesitate to sort of frame that as a woman's issue, though, the whole question of childcare and caregiving responsibilities, because more and more we are seeing that those responsibilities are not just women's issues, but also questions for men. Um, you know, my husband is a partner at a law firm, and he's never been in a situation where he is the sole breadwinner or has a dependent caregiver at home to absorb fully the requirements of dealing with our household. It, it's something that we share. And I think more and more men are dealing with that as more and more women are in the workforce. So I, I think it's really important not to frame the childcare issue as a woman's issue. It, it's actually an associate equity issue that firms have to think about for everyone. And, and I think it's especially important um, 
for men of color who are more likely, as a matter of statistics, to have working spouses as well. So if, if you care about not just retaining women, but also associates of color, that is something that you'll want to be attentive to. Um, one way that firms have tried to deal with the leaky pipeline, um, you know, is sort of thinking about the lateral market. So there's a lot of sort of sideways movement within law firms. Um, there's also, I think, a great deal of movement from government, lots of people coming from U.S. attorney's offices or from the SEC or whatnot. And those can be places where women can enter and move up very quickly into the pipeline. Um, but I will say this about the lateral prospects, um, at least for lateraling between law firms, that's really a kind of zero-sum game. Like maybe the lateraling from government um, can expand right. the core of women um, more substantially. But when you're lateraling between law firms, you're basically just paying Peter by robbing Paul. And so that doesn't really help the issue. But again, it can be a place where women can exercise greater market power in terms of negotiating compensation, and you can sort of maybe remedy some of the individual gaps in compensation that way. But I think law firms really have to think about the various points at which women decide that this is not worth it for them, like the aggravation yeah. is yeah. not worth it. And part of that may be about childcare. Part of it may be looking around and you've done five or six years and you're still not getting the kind of work that you want. You don't have a sponsor who's bringing you along. You haven't been able to make connections with clients. This other guy is building a book of business and, and you have, you're still just doing client service work, but not actually being entrepreneurial in sort of developing your own book of business. And I think when women look at the landscape, there's so many other things that you can do with a law degree. Why would you do this? Why would you continue to toil in a space where it seems clear you're not set up for success? Yeah. And, and uh, thank you. Uh, Professor Monopoly, I know that uh, at your program at Maryland, you guys have some innovative things that even you're teaching at the uh, law school level that can maybe help with this. And, and John, um, I want to, after Professor Monopoly answers, I want to I bring you in as a, a guest and then you could take, uh, take the next question. But I think when you were still at Sherman, this was a part of the vision for what we've created here in terms of uh, the advancement, the retention, some of the training and mentorship. So I just would love to ask you, as you segue into your uh, question uh, for the guest, if you could just add, you know, maybe a footnote at the at the end here. But first, maybe uh, Professor Monopoly, if you don't mind, you know, giving your thoughts and maybe best demonstrated practices from uh, from what you're doing. Yeah, I think um, Professor Murray makes an excellent point, right, which is identifying those points and intervening and really monitoring. So uh, who is getting the work? What is the work? Is it good work? Is it work that's going to lead to right promotion? Um, all the way along, monitoring the compensation, getting, you know, independent people involved who can sort of spot bias. Those are all really important. And I, I think we can't start teaching our students, both men and women. I mean, we're focused on women. Our program um, is a two-course sequence. So the first course educates the students about this rich kind of scholarship and um, literature that documents this empirically that all of these leaky, the leaky pipeline is not a pipeline problem, right? And that it, it's, women are kind of forced out at different points along the way. And so the more you show students that there are research studies, that this is an empirical question, it's a structural problem that women are sort of being pushed out at, as you go up the line. Um, that's the important part of our sort of first course. And there's, you know, the underlying sort of agenda there is so that they don't internalize those things when they happen to them and that they ask at those points for what they need to be successful and to thrive. So if they know that it's not them, it's not that they're doing bad work or they're not good at business development, but that this is a gender issue, it's a structural issue, and they're aware of that, and they're aware that there are studies that show that, that empowers them to persist and then to ask for what they need. So educating Leon, doing intervention, I mean, um, and and again, you know, Melissa's 
program is amazing and we need more programs like this, right? Yes. And if we could proliferate this and have it at dozens of law schools, it would be really powerful. And then, you know, we sort of work on parallel tracks. When they get, we want to keep them in the game long enough to, those who want to stay, right? If you want to stay in private practice and you want to stay in big law, we want to give you that understanding so that you can be persistent. And then the second course and the two core sequences, a more applied workshop. And it deals with a lot of those skills that we were talking about previously, which is, you know, in terms of how do you ask for, how do you negotiate successfully? It's, 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 it's not that women, um, can't ask or don't ask. It's often that they get a much more negative pushback when they do ask. And how do you get people ready for that so they can be persistent to ask for what they need? And communications. How is your gender impeding how people are perceiving you as a successful lawyer? And so we go through those things. Um, and again, the idea is that we, if we can keep them in the game long enough to get power with those individual skills, then they can work on a systemic basis to end the structural problems, right? That are keeping women out of those um, leadership positions. So I think that intervening early and with knowledge and with education and, you know, arming them, (laughs) empowering them is really a critical piece of the puzzle. Well, I just want to, I'm going to use a couple keywords and then I'll explain. One is men and the other is sponsorship. Um, okay. <laughs> until men see this not as a women's issue, but as an issue that needs to be solved, um, we're not going to make as much progress as we need to make. And I think that is generationally beginning to change. Um, younger men do see it as an issue that is important, and it's not a women's issue. It's an issue of equity. And, it, and, and you know, there's something obviously wrong. If you look at if approximately 50% of the incoming associates, which mean the people who you decided meet your standards are women, and you're not progressing them to partnership in the same percentages that you're progressing men, then by definition, you're losing a substantial portion of your talent pool along the way. That makes no sense. Uh, long term for any organization to say, this is a person we want to invest in, um, but but we're going to stop investing at some point along the way because it's too hard. Um, and the second word was sponsorship, which is no one succeeds without a, a mentor and a sponsor and people pushing them and people um, encouraging them, empowering them, not taking the whispering behind the scenes in um, in the courtroom, but allowing them to get up and speak so that they can learn how to do that on their own. Um, that's men and women. Uh, law firms are under a lot of pressure. Partners in law firms are under a lot of pressure right now to produce, produce, produce. And one of the reasons we founded Legal Innovators is to fill a gap on mentorship for people you know, at particularly exposed categories of people because law firm partners are not doing it to the extent they need to, should, I think would even like to. But, you know, whatever law firms say, it's generally not compensated for. It's a soft skill. It's something you do on your own if you're interested. And uh, if you're traveling around the world and trying to build your book of business, um, it's hard to do. And that's why I can't remember whether it was Melissa or Paula who said, women partners are exhausted. Women partners of color Mm -hmm. are more exhausted because this falls on their shoulders and it shouldn't. Yes. Yes. Um, We are coming up to that magic time where uh, John is going to take us out, but I'd like to... um, open it up, uh, Professor Murray, Professor Monopoly, if there are things that we haven't covered that you guys will have to unfortunately do a little bit of a speed round, but if there are things that we haven't touched on you guys want to highlight, please do so. It's clear to me that we need to bring you both back if you're willing, (laughs) so that would be great. And maybe we'll just graze on this and tease it out a little bit. John just touched on it. I thought that there was an interesting intersection between race and gender, and in particular, where you have both. In your book, Professor Monopoly, I think I'll come to you first. Um, You talk at the beginning about the two leading women's organizations kind of going their own way, even when African-Americans didn't get the suffrage and kind of continuing on. I think that largely um, folks have started to support each other. But I wonder, 
Um, are the two movements still moving in parallel or, or, or is there some allyship? And if there's more needed, I, w- I wonder if you can kind of just t- uh, touch on uh, the, the, the differences as we, as we try to close. So I, I, in, in terms of the history, I think, um, you know, one of the things that we've talked a lot about in this kind of commemoration of the 19th Amendment, and it's also the 150th anniversary of the 15th Amendment, right? So intersectionality mm-hmm. in terms of that connection between right. race and gender has been really, really important this year. And, I, you know, it's a very fraught history. And uh, what you mentioned, Brian, right, is the white suffragists who had a missed constitutional opportunity after ratification when African-American 100%. suffragists came and said, we were denied, we were turned away at the polls, even though we've got the 19th Amendment, right? And it's supposed to apply to everybody. Those suffrage groups could have gone and helped, right? They could have done, uh, they were asked to do a congressional investigation. They could have pushed harder for enforcement legislation, civil rights legislation. They didn't do it and they didn't do it in some part. And part of why I call the book Constitutional Orphan is because of that pivot too quickly to another amendment, which was the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, And so they just needed those Southern congressional votes and they sort of turned away from that appeal by African-American suffragists. And it was a missed moment to further fully develop the 19th in a fulsome way. And we, we see that that is, you know, haunted us to this day. And the Equal Rights Amendment battle went sure. on for um, many, many years. We still haven't finished it. But again, there's a history there of white feminists, right, turning away from ignoring and not embracing um, African-American feminists. And so I think that there, we, we, we should listen. White suffragist feminists should have listened. We should listen today when we talk about allyship in terms of these diversity and inclusion efforts, but we have to just listen. Um, and I have had taught some of these um, sort of theories together with some of my um Black colleagues who, who, when I'm teaching women and saying, all right, so let's think about uh, stopping the interruption. Women are interrupted, right, far more than men. And let's think about, Mm -hmm. you know, taking up more space. And my African-American colleagues say to me, well, you know, that's not our issue generally. It's uh, the perception of us is that we are being too assertive and too aggressive, right? And so I'm teaching this one, the narrow kind of path that women have to walk in law firms and in public leadership roles. And it's an even narrower path for women of color. So in terms of allyship, I I think we have to uh, become allies. How we become allies is tricky and, and whether we can sort of uh, transcend that history, I think, is going to be a real challenge. But I don't think we're going to get progress. We have the first Black South Asian female, right, Vice President of the say. United States, and that is huge, <laughs> right? right? And so I have hope right. that right. we can get there. Yeah. But it, it's going to it's it's fraught. It's difficult. So let me just mention three points that I just I think relate to what Paula is saying, and also go back to what John was saying. Um, The question of billable hours versus working hours is one that I think law firms have to grapple with. Um, Statistics show that men bill more billable hours than do women, but that women associates are actually doing more working hours in the firm. And the working hours is planning Women's Leadership Day or International Women's Day events or doing the kind of quote-unquote housekeeping work that's important for the firm but doesn't necessarily help those women build their business, build their stature in the inter, in the firm itself, and, and to advance. And so that's something that we have to think about. I mean, that's a very simple fix, like credit them as billable hours for doing that kind of thankless work. Um, we could also do that in academia too. And I know Paula knows exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about, all of the women on those committees. Um, the problem of women of color, I think, is one that firms really have to be attentive to. And the way that I think that they have tried to deal with these questions of retention and diversity over the last couple of years is to think about them in siloed ways. Like there is a diversity and equity committee that deals primarily with race. And then there's a women's committee that deals with women's issues. And 
that's great, but you miss the women who are dealing with issues that arise out of both contexts. So the women who are subject not only to issues relating to gender, but also to questions of race and ethnicity, and their concerns are sort of falling by the wayside. And you see it in their representation in the firms. 3% of equity partners are women of color. And you know, I, I want to make a plug for NYU and the work that we're doing at the Birnbaum Women's Leadership yes, Network. Um, NYU has a very long history of putting women into the legal profession, um, maybe even earlier than many of its peer law schools. In fact, a number of the women who dot the pages of Paula's book are NYU alumni like Inez Milholland and Crystal Eastman. We right now, um, with the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network, are trying to cultivate leaders within our student body, women who, when they graduate, are prepared to hit the ground running to be effective leaders. We start in law school addressing the same kinds of issues that we see in law firms, women who were stars in college but now find themselves holding back in the classroom and not saying anything. Um, we teach them, you know, no one is always prepared all of the time. Sometimes you have to just wing it and, and, and let the chips fall where they may and how to build resilience and grit, um, even in situations where you are uncomfortable. We talk to them about how to build a personal brand. Who are you? What are you going to do in this profession? What's, what's the outcome for you that you're trying to shape? How are you going to be a leader in a way that is successful for you, but it also is true to who you are and where you come from? Like You don't have to give yourself up in order to be successful. And so we're really proud of the work that we've done with our Women's Leadership Fellowship Program. Uh, we think it's a model that is not just useful for the law school, but something that could be translated to the law firm. And again, building more of those individual skills that help women accommodate right now the systemic barriers they face so that they can get to the point, as Paula says, where they can begin to knock those barriers down because they have earned a place at the table where they can be making these decisions. Can I ask a question on that? Are law firms uh, intersecting with your program in a way where they can benefit from either of your programs and taking something from them? Because what you said is correct, not only in law school, but in law firms. These lessons are critical to get across. We actually have a law firm initiative that we're launching this year where we're inviting law firms from around the country to be part of this. Um, we will offer them not just cutting edge research, sort of being a research hub where we can talk about the most cutting edge work that's being done on questions of gender and diversity in the profession and in other industries, but also bringing people together so they can talk with people who are in-house, um, allowing their women associates to come together with women from other law firms and you know build a network that you can use to refer clients back and forth and also meet people who are making these client-based decisions at the various industries. So we're hoping that more law firms will sign on to this once we get it up and running and fully launched. But we really think that there's a lot of promise there for the law firms and certainly for their associates, because we want to, again, farm out what we've been doing for our law students and allow them to also apply it within the law firm itself. So this kind of leadership training that can go beyond the law school, but also can be meaningful in practice. Yeah, and I, and I think I would echo what Melissa's saying about law firms are excited about this work. You know, our, our Women Leadership and Equality Program has been going on for a, a little bit more than 15 years. And every, you know, sort of opportunity that firms that where we have alums who are, uh, find out about the program, they want to come in, they want to contribute, they want to support students, they want to share that knowledge. That's what we're finding is that especially, right, women who fought this battle are excited about sharing that knowledge. So through events, through guest speaking, through scholarship, um, it, it's really, I think, a tremendous way for them to pass on that hard, hard won and hard fought knowledge. So it is exciting to firms. Well, thank you so much again to our fabulous guests, Professor Paula Monopoly and Melissa Murray for joining us today. This was such an interesting and important conversation. We're incredibly appreciative. Uh, we also want to thank our listeners to The Law in Black and White. We hope you enjoyed this. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. And you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. Uh, we look forward to talking to you next time. 
and please be safe and enjoy the holidays until we next speak.